So that's a quick message, right? <laughs> Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And you know, if we understood that, we could say amen and go warm ourselves by a fire, right? Yet too often, we find ourselves not understanding this, not knowing what God is speaking and just exactly how he's calling us to be holy. We begin a new sermon series today, and it's a a new look, if you will, at the seven deadly sins, the erosion of the heart. I love the the image, one, I I made it, so I kind of like it. Um, But two, the image of the front of how the water has eroded away that beautiful rock to where it just stands above the water and it makes this design that we know that, that God's working something within us. But at times we can see that erosion of it and it won't stand, it won't last. How long will that rock on top maintain its position? As we look today, we are looking at sin and speaking about sin because too often we live in a world that doesn't want us to talk about sin or even to call people sinners. It's become unfashionable to talk about it and it's kind of dropped from our vocabulary. Human psychology has taught us the the importance of good self-esteem. So we're hesitant to even critique anyone's behavior or life choices for fear of damaging their self-image. We don't want to step on people's freedom and do what they want. So there's some fear, because maybe you've grown up in this, where it's all the preacher talked about. Every week I got yelled at and, and I was told to do this and to be better and I just felt guilty and beat down. Today I think we are smarter and better that we don't have to call, or maybe this is what we think, that we don't have to call anyone sinner. But Jesus came for sinners. We know that all is not right in our world, but we prefer to call them mistakes or problems or blunders. But we live in a world with drug problems and rape problems and cheating problems and violence problems and environmental problems and economic problems, but we're hesitant to call any of that a sin or that it could be morally wrong. Even devout Christians are hesitant to call anything sin because they're afraid of being seen as intolerant. Bishop Willimon in his book, Sinning Like a Christian, I found this statement. He says, it is odd that we have made even Jesus into such a quivering mass of affirmation and oozing graciousness, considering how frequently, unguardedly, and gleefully Jesus told us that we were sinners. Anyone who thinks that Jesus was into inclusiveness, self-affirmation, and open-minded, heart-happy acceptance has then got to figure out why we responded to him by nailing him on a cross. He got there not for urging us to consider the lilies, but for calling us whitewashed tombs and even worse. We can look at scripture and see that Jesus is the most gracious, loving, and accepting person. 
especially for those who were rejected by the religious self-righteous. He was always known to be with sinners, eating with them. But Jesus had no more trouble calling people out for their sins or telling them to go and sin no more. It wasn't that Jesus went around looking for people in their sin because he didn't. This wasn't his focus. Jesus' focus was that God's reign was invading the earth and he wanted people to get on board and to join the mission. So Jesus' message everywhere as he went was repent, change your mind, turn around and follow me because I will lead you to life. I will lead you to wholeness and healing. God's mission in the world is to save and and redeem the world. God wants to save us from self-serving, destructive, violent, and fragmented existence that we think passes for life. Through Jesus, we are saved from sin that cuts us off from our creator so we can begin to participate in heaven on earth. Now, Before we get into the history of how the seven deadly sins came about, I wanna talk about what sin is. You can look at the the Greek word hamartia, and it's taken from a a common, in the Greco-Roman world, it was an archery term. An archer would draw the string back and let the arrow go, and if the arrow strayed from its target, it was said hamartia has occurred. The arrow missed the mark. So a simple definition of sin is missing the mark. I don't feel like that's a thorough, detailed explanation of what we live in. It's rebellion against God. It's living counter to God's intended purpose for our life. Sin is not a matter of just breaking a law. It's a matter of breaking a covenant with God our Savior. When we stray from God's will, when we miss the mark, and man, I can miss it good, we find ourselves missing out on the very thing that God desires most from us. We can get a picture of peace, where peace, justice, righteousness, and wholeness reign It's a picture of a a peaceable kingdom where the wolf and lamb lie down together. Maybe you're familiar with this text in Isaiah 11. It's a picture of what God intended for the world from the beginning and what Jesus came proclaiming when he invited people to repent and follow him. So sin violates shalom. It ruptures our relationship with God. Sin makes the world not the way God intended it to be. So we sin. We miss out on the very thing that God desires most for us. A relationship with God. A relationship with each other and our world. And it leads us to brokenness within ourselves. As a parent... I want what's best for my children. I set boundaries and rules to, to, for them to follow so they will have this good and, and joyful life. I want to protect them, keep them from harm, and, and keep them safe. 
If you don't know, we live across the street, right? Just right there. And you know, prior to this week, it was a really easy crossing. You know, we just pretty much get there and be like, okay, go. And we have set rules for crossing the street. We all cross together. And you have to listen for my voice. Because sometimes I'll say go to the middle and they know to get in between the yellow lines. And sometimes I'll say go all the way. I think it's so important for us in relationship to this passage of scripture this morning. God is laying out this simple foundation, be holy for I am holy. But he's speaking and he says, say to the entire congregation, say to the entire assembly of Israel, let's change of Israel to of Statesboro, of Pittman Park. Be holy for I the Lord your God am holy. We come together, we're all together in this for we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But together, we can listen for the voice of God speaking to us and challenging us. I think it's even in community that we can help hold each other accountable for our downfalls, our sins. So where does this idea, this term of the seven deadly sins come in? For most of church history, the church has identified seven sins that have been seen as deadly because of how they choke out life and keep us from pursuing a vibrant relationship with God. There is a movie that I do not recommend to anyone under 17 (laughs) called Seven. And it is a violent encounter with the play on these terms of the seven deadly sins. But from the earliest formation, Evagarius Ponticus, a desert monk from the fourth century, established a group of monks who went out to live in the desert in order to separate themselves from a wicked world so they could pursue this closer walk with God. The ironic thing though, was that there in the desert, away from the temptations of the wicked world, these monks discovered their own sin. Evagarius started to write down the things he struggled with, with the most in his little aesthetic community. He named eight demons that he thought about and pondered and wrestled with that kept him from God and made life in community so difficult. As he wrote these down, he discovered that the other monks shared these same struggles over the same sins. For these desert monks, the eight sins, in order from least importance to the most, were gluttony, lust, greed, Sadness, anger, sloth, vainglory, and pride. He began with the the bodily sins of gluttony and lust because for him, they were the easiest to overcome. For, let me say that again, for him, they were the easiest to overcome. Pride was the most difficult Because even if you got through all the others, you're still left with pride. So then in the sixth century, Pope Gregory the Great 
said that these sins are not unique to just monks. I'm glad it took a pope to get that across, right? And that all Christians struggle with them. He narrowed the list down to seven that we have today. Pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust. He also noted that these sins were the root of all the sins. He said that what makes these so deadly is their generative quality. He spoke of these seven as the leaders of wicked armies. These seven were not deadly in the sense that they lead one to damnation, but they were the source of other sins. These sins, if they gain a significant hold on our hearts, will burrow themselves, will dig deep, will erode away at our soul. All that is beautiful will be torn away. So throughout the Middle Ages, the church began to teach and teach about the seven deadly sins because these were the things that could choke out life and ultimately destroy you. There are a couple things to me that are very interesting about them. The first is that you won't find this list anywhere in the Bible. It doesn't exist. Yes, these seven appear randomly throughout the Bible, but not in one list. They are not given weight that the church gave them centuries ago. Even after the Protestant Reformation, churches basically ignored them because they were not listed as a group, as a set. And the emphasis became more on the Ten Commandments as a basis of Christian morality. But it's amazing to me that they still find their way back. Because again, we can all agree that we struggle within the framework of these seven. They don't seem that deadly. One would have to ask, why should we worry about gluttony when murder is so prevalent? Just look at the news from Fort Lauderdale to across the world where violence has taken place and death occurs. As I said earlier, the seven are chosen because they seem to lead. They lead us into others. They're so ordinary and common that everyone is dealing with them and that's just the point. One of our temptations is to think that real sin belongs to madmen. Hitler, Gaddafi, or even ISIS. It's easier to lament the evil that is large and systemic and political because as long as we keep sin large and global that we don't have to deal with it in our own sin and brokenness. It's easy to think that sin applies to someone other than ourselves. I'm a good person. But I think we have to look. We have to take our eyes and look at the things that pull us away. The category is not so much the sinner and the righteous, but the sinners who see their sin and those who don't. In the Christian faith, An act or an inclination, a passion or even an emotion is sinful to the degree that it alienates us from God 
by offending God. Sin is about our relationship with God to those who do not know or do not serve this God. The seven are bound to seem just silly, much ado about nothing. Thus we are not to seek the seriousness and significance of these seven by uncovering their effects on our life. I think we can look in our own way and see how they violate the nature of God. Because it's the nature of God that we can see the love he's called us to. The very first thing that we are to do with sin is not to point to it in others, but rather to confess it in ourselves. It's the Ash Wednesday service. Remember you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Remember that you are a sinner. We proclaim it in our liturgy of Holy Communion. While sin is not the the defining aspect of a human being, nor is it the chief concern of our life with God, our life with God enables us to openly confess our sin and to begin again, to get up, to go on, to resume our journey with God. God does not command us to do impossible things. With God's grace, we can be more than conquerors through him who loves us. The main reason to even spend these next two months, all this effort talking about sin is so that we can name it, we can claim it, and we can move on to more significant lives than if we had lied about ourselves. So we begin and we investigate sin. We stare it in the face and emit its reality and its ravages so that we may be on our way to fulfillment of God's great promise. To God's people, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. All of God's sweeping commands And all of Jesus' expectations are meant to be heard by us as vocation, that abundant life that we are meant to live. Righteousness, freedom from these seven, virtuous life is meant not to be some impossible ideal, but rather a gift that is offered. Here from Deuteronomy 30, beginning in verse 11. Surely this commandment that I am commanding you today is not too hard for you, nor is it too far away. It is not in heaven, neither is it beyond the sea. No, the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart for you to observe. May we seek the word of God in our mouth, our heart, and our lives as we live for him. Will you join us as we pray? Mighty God, we come to you now in need of this great love of yours to be inspired and to serve, to seek forgiveness, to not hide from the temptations that we can lie to ourselves about, but to see and to call ourselves to a holiness with you.
Forgive us of our sin. Forgive us of all the times we've lied to ourselves and allow us this time to speak it openly before you, to seek forgiveness and your holy redemption. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.